You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. It wasn't only the music, was it? It was something beyond that. There was something magical about them. That's right. There was something beyond all precedent and experience, and it really hasn't been succeeded. Beatles press agent Derek Taylor. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Derek Taylor was a working journalist when he first met the Beatles, as he was literally in the right place at the right time, as the Beatles were just on the cusp of achieving major fame in England. Manager Brian Epstein brought Derek Taylor on as the Beatles' press agent. Taylor then accompanied the boys as they rocketed to worldwide fame. Taylor's story, as he told in his 1987 book called It Was 20 Years Ago Today, illustrates how the Beatles transcended mere music. They were good musicians, but they went way beyond music to become cultural icons whose influence continues to this day. So here now, from 1987, Derek Taylor. For the uninitiated, those perhaps who are too young to know or who have forgotten, who is Derek Taylor? Derek Taylor has to know, has to accept, and does so ungrudgingly that forever he will be the former Beatles press agent. (laughs) However, he has had other lives and lives in the now, as recommended by his friend George Harrison, who's quoted in this book as uh, believing that we mustn't haunt the past and we shouldn't look to the future but should live in the now. Now, uh, Derek Taylor was a journalist who got lucky in the 60s and met the Beatles and was picked by them to be a press officer. As the Beatles finished in 1970, so Derek Taylor moved on to be uh, director of special projects at Warner Brothers Records and on and on through that corporate structure to be vice president in Burbank and decided it wasn't really a lot of fun listening to new albums. So... Moving out of the third person to the now, I now live and leap from book to book and trust that, uh, as Roger McGuinn of the Bird said, everything will work out all right. Was it just luck that you wound up as their as a press agent? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, there were, in those days, a lot of people um, around, uh, but I happened to be, if you liked, the right shape and size and age, perhaps, rather older than them, but not old-fashioned, at a time when they were getting... They were well-known in England and could be said to be famous, but they hadn't been to America. And Brian Epstein, their manager, uh, wanted uh, someone to ghost his autobiography. The Daily Express, for whom I worked, wanted a Beatle to write a column, and so I sort of ghosted that. But at the same time, I was also theatre critic on many other matters and uh, had been a general reporter so I was pretty comprehensive as a working journalist and therefore had a handle on things that perhaps that they didn't uh, know a lot about so I was useful and as I say from Liverpool and um, at a time when they needed a new press officer I slotted into that and became Epstein's personal assistant in time for the big plunge into the world when we went to Australia, New Zealand, and then America in 64. I'm sorry, it's a long answer to a short question. (laughs) Has it surprised you over all these years at how legendary the Beatles have become, that they have become the standard against which all others are measured? 
No, that hasn't surprised me. Um, what does surprise me is to hear you say it. Um, you know, we haven't met before, and uh, I know it, but you reinforce it. And every time I hear someone originate it, uh, I'm surprised, and yet I'm not surprised. I expected them to be the, that, that which they are. But sometimes you think it's all in your own head because you'd, I've got to know them very well and always believed it anyway. I was, you know, a serious enthusiast. It wasn't only the music, was it? It was something beyond that, and that's what we're talking about. I think all the time we're talking beyond the music. Exactly. They were four very talented musicians, of course, but yes. each one individually, they're... There are singers today who can sing as well. A few composers, perhaps, who uh, on on the right day can compose as well. But there was something magical about them. That's right. There was something beyond all precedent and experience, and there really hasn't been succeeded. I'm, you know, I don't think the, there was a, always uh, going to be another Beatles. There was always a Dave Clark Five. You know, in sort of in waiting, but it never really amounted to anything in the long run, and even. The wonderful American response, I mean, I just mentioned the birds. The birds were certainly regarded by the Beatles as terribly important. There were the San Francisco people, there were all those folk singers who combined to be mamas and papas, grassroots, leaves, turtles. Um, and then there was the Paul Simons, Simon Garfunkel, San Francisco groups, many of them still performing. There had been the Beach Boys, who were world famous, deservedly, who could knock out... Dozens and dozens of tunes. They can, they can sustain a career forever, making people think that it's always summer. But having said that, none of those people are the Beatles. So there never was another, and of course there never will be. And and uh, I, you know, you put Bob Dylan in there with, with Elvis, and you've just about got the um, golden triangle. As with the the other kind of music, you had Jolson, Crosby, and Sinatra. Then you can have Tony Bennett and Victor Moan endorsed by Sinatra till he's blue in the face. But there's only, you know... Often imitated but never do. There's only Frank left. <laughs> and he's not going to, be, going to be succeeded. So why? I don't know. Well, as the book, uh, as, as the name of your book implies, 20 years ago today is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 20 years, it's hard to believe it's been. It is. It still years. sounds fresh. Yes. It, it, it's, uh, on the other hand, if you see the fashions of yesterday in the book, as you know, and, I'm, and this is shameless plugging, but I have to do it to, to somehow to get away from the Beatles. We can return if you wish. It's about more than that. It's about a countercultural explosion in America against which Sergeant Pepper has to be set, really. And it was in that context that Sergeant Pepper got that halo around it, because it wasn't necessarily their greatest album. But it's the only one we could, I think, build a little radio show around, again, because of what it seemed to be. It seemed to have a colour and a texture which was... Um, it was sparkling, right, right on time. It was right for that era. If it had been released in 1964 or in 1972, it wouldn't have been the same, would it? And it wouldn't have been the same as 68, which was a darker time in American culture, wasn't it? And it, it was a time of assassinations and uh, Chicago problems at the convention and uh, student riots. So in that environment, the rather more serious White Album came out with a, 
songs that weren't um, again I was going to say weren't as light hearted there, there were serious songs on Sgt. Pepper She's Leaving Home is quite a serious song about a child who's not happy A Day in the Life is about someone who blew his mind out in a car but uh, upbeat is the feeling you get when the album's through one of the people I quote in the book says uh, you could wake up feeling nervous in the morning and play, Sar play Sergeant Pepper and feel brave all day and it does have the effect of encouraging people I mean Abby Hoffman said and, and others that you know they not only do they remember when they first heard it but it was a good album to, pl to plan revolution by so it had everything for everybody didn't it after this short break, Derek Taylor comments on the Beatles' appearance. Oh, the hair! There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 1987 conversation with Derek Taylor. How often do you personally get a chance to put an album on, a Beatles album, and listen? Is it daily, weekly? Well, how often do I get take the whim to do it? Uh, I think if my wife and I feel like uh, getting into um, a mode to find out how it felt since we've been around since the beginning of time... Uh, as a couple, then we'll uh, put it on, say, once every th two or three months, that, and we'll do an Abbey Road and the Songs for Swinging Lovers, uh, and uh, perhaps a James Taylor. All these are people who spoke of their time, and that's really what great popular music should be. It should, it should be of its time and survive. And if it doesn't, then, of course, it was disposable. That's not to say it's bad, but some music is quite disposable. I think a lot of today's music, I fear there isn't the depth, uh, though that could be my age. About five or six years ago, my wife was in a record store behind uh, a girl who was probably 13 or 14 and heard her say to another 13 or 14-year-old, did you know that Paul McCartney used to be with another group before Wings? Well, that's very healthy, I think. Don't you? I think that's good. Perhaps it's a lack of a sense of history, but uh, I think a one-note Beatle fan can be uh, can be leading a fairly limited life. I think it's as well to know about what's going on around our own times. Though Which it's is, difficult for yeah, someone of say, a certain age to realise that McCartney isn't remembered as one of the Beatles. Although a lot of people don't see him as one of the Beatles. Makes you feel older, doesn't it? I am old, dear. <laughs> Golly, I remember when the first Beatles record came into my household, how scandalized my father was at the length of their hair. Yeah, well, Frank Sinatra's press agent said, it have got hair long enough to grow two watermelons in it. But of course, now you look at it, it was like Gene Pitney. Little dark suits and white collars and black ties, bowing at the end of the Ed Sullivan show. So you see, now you look at those terrorists on uh, MTV and see how polite the Beatles were. Yes, well, I mean, it's all a matter of scale and perspective, isn't it? Are there drug messages in their records? 
I don't think there are any drug messages. If there are references, they're pretty overt. I'd love to turn you on is uh, ambiguous, but there's no doubt that one aspect of it was uh, I'd love to turn you on to, uh, you know, seeing beyond yourself, take you through the doors of perception, get you high, whatever. And there's also I'd love to turn you on to a new way of looking at things. There is certainly no drug messages in Loosing the Sky with Diamonds. It's not, it's not LSD, as they said. Otherwise, he, John would have copped to it. He was never a dissembler. It was about his uh, Julian's little friend Lucy in the sky with diamonds in the, in the painting that the boy brought back from school. A little help from my friends. Again, there's perhaps there's ambiguity, but what the song is about is the outsider saying, I'm a bit of an outsider, I think. Are you still my friends? They're all saying, yes, Ringo, of course we are. We'll look after you. What is it you want? He says, I need somebody to love. So I think there were no hidden drug messages, though there's no, it's public record, isn't it, that they were smoking pot and taking LSD in those days. Those were the, and those were the drugs of choice then. Uh, we claimed, maybe we were deceiving ourselves, that we were looking for a higher consciousness. But sometimes, perhaps we just wanted to get high. I'm curious about something. What does it? What goes through a press agent's mind when his client sits in front of the television cameras and reporters from all over the world and says, "I think we're more popular than Jesus Christ." Well, fortunately, then, which was a very difficult time, I wasn't working for them. I dropped out and came back in '67. I mean, that would be a big panic for me then. I mean, Brian Epstein did ring from Port Mary and said, John has uh, been quoted saying the most awful thing and we've got to do the American tour. I'm not asking advice, I'm just ringing you to communicate. And I said, well, I'm very glad I don't have to deal with it because it, it was clearly said and it wasn't even taken out of context. Uh, it was just John being John, wasn't it? And as he said, I'm sorry, you know, and he came and he did that, I think, fairly abject and uh, undeniably difficult apology at the airport saying, so, yeah, I did say it, and now I'll probably be nailed up for, you know, sort of trying to talk my way out of it. But uh, on the face of it, well, it was true. I mean, certainly in England, uh, which has got a 5% church-going population in the Church of England, and all the rest are fairly pagan, it was true. They were more popular than, than uh, Jesus in, in, uh, in, in, in a straw poll in the street. In America, it was much more difficult because you have more church going, you have a Bible belt, and it was headlined. I mean, it was in a, you know, it was in a newspaper in England in the middle of a whole load of other stuff. I was very relieved not to be dealing with it. I even now don't know how to explain <laughs> my way out of it. But they were, there again, you know, they were known for giving very direct answers. I mean, one of the most direct answers they used to give, which I'd never heard before from public figures, was I don't know if they didn't know anything. Most people sort of give an opinion, but uh, a given or, you know, conventional wisdom. But if they didn't know... They used to say, I don't know. If they were just now, in 1987, emerging as this brand new group, and you were their press agent, and uh, they were emerging to the same kind of success that they had uh, when, when you were starting with them, would you handle them differently today than you did? No, I, it was always, uh, the, the, the easy thing about handling them was that if you ever, if you ever could get them to people, and I mean, there was too much pressure really to do, to, to do anything but scratch the surface, to do more than scratch the surface of things. 
Uh, it was always a matter of pride that they would never let you down. They would always be interesting. They would always be open, fun, and uh, people were so jolly pleased, particularly uh, away from England. But it was more noticeable in America and Australia. Um, that an interview with the Beatles was always rewarding. Not only did you have the famous voices, which were then very commercial, but uh, you had a bit of sparkle and a bit of uh, an edge to what you were getting from them, particularly if you got more than one. So, you know, it was really like having a nice family, you know, and people said, what nice children you've got. I mean, aren't the Beatles great? It was, it was really nice being with such pleasant people. It was a privilege. Derek Taylor died in 1997. He was 65. Now, you can get a copy of Derek Taylor's book, It Was 20 Years Ago Today, by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. Heardeverything.com is where you'll also hear my 2007 interview with another pop figure from the 60s. Donovan. I come from a storytelling tradition. Uh, in fact, uh, it's clear to me now that I'm a reincarnated bard uh, of, of a Celtic uh, order uh, who uh, can teach through music. And my 2002 conversation with Graham Nash. His greatest dream was to attend the, the soccer cup oh, final at mm. Wembley Stadium. He never made it. So when Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played Wembley Stadium at a concert, the first thing I did was go down onto the field and start kicking a ball around for my dad. And as you know, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including now YouTube. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything... She made history in the 1980s by becoming the first woman to be elected Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation. My 1993 interview with Wilma Mankiller. I think even my name conjures up visions of someone who probably rides to work on a horse. There are a lot of stereotypes about the Native people. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>